We are continuing this morning with our study of First Peter, and we have a lot of ground to cover both this week and next. So would you please stand for the reading of God's word? We'll be getting the book of First Peter, chapter 5, verse 8, and then we'll continue with two other readings as well. First Peter, chapter 5, beginning of verse 8, Peter writes, Be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put your Lord, your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. And now Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. And just before he died in 1963, C.S. Lewis granted one final interview to the editor of Decision Magazine. What makes this interview so fascinating is the way that Lewis is looking back on all of his life and being so uh, reflective, just like any of us would be at the end of our days. And he was a prolific author of more than 30 books from The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe to Mere Christianity. And he was asked in this interview if he actually enjoyed writing all of these books. This is what he said. He said, if I didn't enjoy writing, I wouldn't continue to do it. But of all of my books, there was just one that I did not take pleasure in writing. Those of you who know his works, can you guess which one it was? The screw tape letters. The screw tape letters. See, the screw tape letters were originally published as a series in an Anglican magazine. They were the original podcast. And what he did is each week he would write just one letter, a fictional correspondence between an older demon named Screwtape and a younger demon 
named Wormwood. And these letters were so dark, so gritty, so convincing in the way that they were designed to illustrate the way that the devil tempts us, that this magazine began to receive letters pleading with them to remove it. It's just too dark, too real. You see, for an author who wrote with such joy, such enjoyment, such fantasy, why would he write something that he didn't like writing? Because I think he knew that it was something that we needed to read. Lewis wrote in the preface to the screw tape letters why he wrote. He said this, he said, there was two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, Lewis says, are equally pleased in both errors. In other words, there's two great mistakes that we make as people concerning the devil. One is to make too much of him, to envision him of some kind of arch nemesis that is almost like a comic book character. But the other is to not make much of him at all, to the point where we don't even believe in his existence. And this is where I think we find ourselves this morning, some 70 years later, in modern evangelical Christianity. So I'm going to do something this week and the next that does not happen very often in modern pulpits. I'm going to preach about the devil. And let me tell you, it's not because I thought that this would be a really fun summer sermon topic. (laughs) This is where we find ourselves in the book of 1 Peter. And in many ways, this is why we preach through books of the Bible. Because none of us gets off the hook. Not you and not me. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to talk about who the devil is what the devil does, and why it matters for us as Christians. And the next week, I want to look at our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, and what it means to resist the devil through the power of the cross. Peter reminds us, he is pleading with us this morning. He's saying, be watchful. Be sober-minded, your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion. He is seeking someone to devour. And so this morning, what I want us all to recognize is that the devil exists and why it matters so deeply to our souls. So first, who is the devil? The devil is real. Again, Peter writes this, look with me. 1 Peter 5, verse 8. He says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. He says, be watchful, be sober-minded. It's the same language he used about the coming of Christ. Be watchful, be sober-minded. In other words, don't sleep on Jesus Christ's return. But don't sleep on the devil either. Because he is lurking in the shadows He is prowling around and he wants nothing more than to attack you, especially when you least expect it, when you don't think he is there at all. Again, in the screw tape letters, C.S. Lewis put it this way. Here's screw tape writing to Wormwood. 
He says, if any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in their minds, suggest to them a picture of something in red tights. Persuade them that because they cannot believe in that, they cannot believe in you. You see, I think we can all relate to this. When I speak of the devil, what do you picture? What do you envision in your mind? Right now, what do you see? A bearded man dressed in red tights with two horns and a pitchfork. You see, pop culture has created the devil into being this fanciful character, like something out of a bad mythology. And it's so ridiculous that no person in their right mind would actually think that he is real. And this isn't just true of the secular world around us, but this is true for Christians as well. Barna estimates that some four out of every 10 Christians don't believe that the devil actually exists as a living being, but that he is merely a representation, a symbol, a personification of evil. So I must ask you this morning, what do you believe? What do you believe about the devil? Do you believe he is real? Or do you believe he is merely a symbol, a personification of evil? Because here's the deal. The devil in the red tights with the two horns and the pitchfork, I can level with you. That devil is not real. And no person in the right mind believes in that devil. But I think all of us this morning must recognize that there is unspeakable evil in our world that we cannot explain away with modern terminology. We cannot just chalk it up to social imperfection. There is evil that exists and the devil of the Bible and the way the Bible describes him is far more heinous and far more sinister. And don't you think if he is deceptive as the Bible says that he is, that the greatest trick that he could ever pull is to convince us that he doesn't exist. In Hebrew, he's called Satan. Satan comes from the Hebrew word meaning accuser. So literally his name means accusation. In Greek, he's called the devil. The devil in, the, in Greek just means slanderer or liar. Genesis describes him as a serpent. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord God has made. In the Gospel of John, Jesus himself calls him the father of lies. Listen to what he says. He says, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar. He is the father of lies. In 2 Corinthians, the apostle Paul says that the devil is, disguises himself as an angel of light. In the book of Revelation, John says that he is the dragon, the great dragon that was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. There is so much misconception about who the devil is that we get more from pop culture and poetic works than we do from the Bible itself. What the Bible tells us is that the devil is real, that he was created by God, good, like all things, and that he used his freedom 
to rebel against God as one of his angels and to lead a host of angels with him. And now he is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And there's probably not a better passage in the Bible that argues for a real devil than Matthew chapter 4. When Jesus is led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. Look with me in your bulletin, Matthew chapter 4 verse 1. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This is incredibly important for us this morning because not only does this passage reveal who the devil is, but it also gives us insight to what the devil does. What does the devil do? Well, Peter tells us he's seeking someone to devour. Okay, who is he seeking to devour? The devil wants to devour Jesus Christ and his church. The temptation of Jesus in the wilderness here gives us three insights into the devil's strategy. Just how is the devil seeking to devour Christ and his church? I want to give you three strategies this morning about what the devil does. And then next week, so you got to come back. Next week, I want to give us some practical ways that we resist these strategies through the cross of Christ. The first way that the devil seeks to devour the church is this. The devil is an accuser. He's an accuser. Remember, the name Satan literally means in Hebrew, it means accusation. It means accuser. And so this is one of the primary ways that he seeks to devour us. Look with Matthew 4, verse 2. We're told that Jesus was fasting 40 days and 40 nights, and he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now notice the first thing that Jesus is told. The devil tells him, if you are the son of God. In other words, he's calling Jesus's sonship into question. You see, the devil accuses us in order to wedge a division between us and our heavenly father. He is hurling accusations at us to alienate us from our heavenly father. And so he comes after Jesus. He calls his sonship into question. He says, if you are really the son of God, in other words, you're not really his son, Jesus. Why? Because if you were, you wouldn't be hungry. You wouldn't be needy. You wouldn't be wanting. If you're really his son, then feed yourself. Turn these stones into bread. And this is exactly the way that he approaches us as Christ followers as well. What are his accusations? You're not God's sons and daughters. You don't deserve to be here in his presence. Shame on you. What's wrong with you? Can you hear his voice? You are a sinner, you are broken. You are needy, and you have no business being here in the sanctuary of God. It's the devil's accusation. He is hurling insults at you. And I wonder this morning, do you hear these accusations loudly? Do you come into a church like this feeling such shame and such guilt? This morning, if you hear the accusations of the devil, 
I want you to hear the plea of Jesus Christ to drown those accusations out with a thundering voice. Christ says, you are mine. You are mine. And you are my beloved son or daughter. Through the Apostle Paul, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What that means is if you know Jesus Christ, you are not condemned. Whatever the devil might tell you, whatever accusation he might hurl at you, you stand in the perfect obedience of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is nothing that can separate us from his love. His second strategy is that he's a liar. He's a liar. Again, just as the name Satan is Hebrew for accuser, the name devil is Greek for slanderer or liar. And the devil lies. He is trying to undermine God's authority by twisting his word. Look with me, verse 5, Matthew 4. So the devil took Jesus to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For as it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Notice how the devil lies to Jesus. Do you see it? He's twisting the word of God. What does he say? He says, as it is written. The devil actually here, believe it or not, is quoting from the Bible. He's quoting Psalm 91, and he's twisting it. He's twisting the word of God to cause Jesus to be disobedient. You see, this is exactly what the devil does with us as Christ followers, too. He's a liar. He twists the word of God. And this wasn't his first time to employ this strategy. Remember what he does in Genesis Now the serpent said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? He's a liar. He twists the word of God. He causes us to question its authority in our lives. And he even uses it against us. How does he do this? Thomas Brooks puts it this way, a great book that I could not recommend more to you. It's a little book by a Puritan named Thomas Brooks, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Well worth your time and effort. This is what he says. He says, there's nothing in the world that renders a man more unlike a saint and more like Satan than to argue from God's mercy to sinful liberty, from divine goodness to licentiousness. What does that mean? It means Satan loves to twist the grace of God in our minds to say, look, you're going to be forgiven anyways. Isn't that what grace is for? You don't need to actually obey him or do what he says. There's no authority that God has over your life. He cannot be trusted. Do you hear Satan's lies? He's lying to you. He's lying to the church. He's twisting the word of God. He's calling us to question its authority. Brothers and sisters in Christ, his word is authoritative. It is inerrant. It is the word. It is trustworthy. How do we know this? Because the word, Jesus Christ, took on flesh and dwelt among us. 
The Word, Jesus Christ, laid His life down for us. We can trust Him, and we can trust what He says. The last strategy that the devil uses is one that's probably familiar to us all. The devil's a tempter. There is never a time that we do not worship. What I mean by that is worship is not going to stop for you when you leave this church this morning. You see, so often we think of worship as this thing that we do at this hour, but worship is something we do in all of life. It does not stop. It's it's continuous. You see, you were created to be a worshipful person. You were created for the glory of God. Paul says in Romans 12 that we are to be a living sacrifice, that our bodies ourselves are meant to be a display of worship. And so what that means for us is that because we are created to worship God and give him honor and praise and glory with all of life, that means that the devil's most effective, most sinister, most devastating strategy that he can put on the church is to tempt us to worship something else other than God. And that's what he's after behind every temptation. Again, look with me, verse 8, Matthew 4. It says, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said, I will give you all of this if you would just bow down and worship me. The devil is tempting Jesus with wealth, with power, with glory. A way to achieve these things. The only cost is his worship. What does that teach us this morning about the devil's strategy? Well, what it means is this. The devil's temptation is not simply about your morality. He's not just after your actions. The devil is after your very heart. He is after your desires. The devil is about your worship. and He wants it for himself. And so when he tempts you, he's not just tempting you to do a wrong act. He is trying to overwhelm your hearts with new desires, sinful desires. And so he makes sin look enticing to us. He makes it seem so desirable. He makes it look like something that we would want. He makes us even bow down to it in worship. Martin Luther put it this way. He said, idolatry does not consist merely in erecting an image and praying to it, but it is a matter of the heart which fixes its gaze on other things and seeks help and consolation from creatures, saints, or the devil himself. This is why I think it is so difficult for us as people to resist the temptation of the devil with sheer willpower. That's why this is so frustrating for us. Because try and try as you might just to do a different thing, that temptation just still slams against us. You cannot overcome Temptation with just sheer willpower. But you need a new affection. You need a resurrected heart. You need new desires, a new sense of awe and majesty, a new sense of worship for the glory of the cross of Christ. So finally this morning, why does any of this matter? Why does it matter for us as Christians to know who the devil is and what the devil does? Because the devil has waged war against Jesus Christ and his church. Peter puts it this way. 1 Peter 5 verse 8. 
he gives the devil a title. He says the devil is your adversary. The devil's your enemy, church. He is your enemy and he has waged war against the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul said it best when he said, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness. And the devil's primary mission is to do one thing, is to attack Jesus Christ, to attack the gospel, to attack the cross. And so through accusations and lies and idolatry, the devil has one primary goal, prevent Jesus and prevent his church from going to the cross. After each temptation, when it was all over, Matthew 4, verse 10, Jesus cries out, Be gone, Satan. And brothers and sisters, I want you to notice what happens next. Jesus tells the devil to be gone, and what does the devil do? He leaves. And do you want to know why? Because he has to. Whatever power that the devil might have over you, over me, fails in comparison to the power and majesty of Jesus Christ with one word. Jesus commands the devil to be gone and he has to obey because Jesus Christ is king and Lord over all. With one little word, in the same way that he commanded the winds and the waves to cease, he says, Jesus, be gone. And he says this just one more time in the Gospel of Matthew. This time, not to the devil directly, but he says it to the apostle Peter. Matthew 16, verse 21. We're told that Jesus begins to tell his disciples about the gospel, what he intends to do on the cross. He tells his disciples that I am going to go to the cross, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and on the third day I'm going to rise again. Jesus is preaching his disciples before it even happens. This is the gospel this is the good news. And what is Peter's response to hearing the good news for the first time? He pulls Jesus aside and he rebukes him and he tells him, don't do it, Jesus. Don't go to the cross. And so what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. In the Greek, it's the exact same phrase. The same exact words that he told the devil himself in the wilderness in Matthew 4. Be gone. Get behind me, Satan. You see, there is a theme here. With every accusation, every temptation, at every turn, the devil's aim is one thing. Don't go to the cross. Don't go to the cross. Prove yourself that you are the son of God, Jesus, without going to the cross. Lying and twisting things for Peter. Don't do it, Jesus. We love you too much. Don't go to the cross. There in the Garden of Gethsemane, there is Jesus being tempted to the point of sweating drops of blood. And what does he say? If it's possible, take this cup from me. Don't go to the cross. But what does he say? Not my will, but yours be done. And there he is hanging on the cross itself. And one of the thieves next to him says what? If you are the Christ, then come down off the cross and save ours. Save yourself. In other words, don't go to the cross. At every turn, the devil has one mission. Don't go to the cross. And because he has already failed in that mission against Jesus, that is now his mission against you and against me. He is accusing you. He is lying to you. He is tempting you all for one purpose. 
so that you would avoid the cross of Jesus Christ. And so what do we do? How do we resist? Now that we know who he is and what he's doing, what do we do as the people of God? Well, we do exactly the very thing that he doesn't want us to do. We gather together as God's people and we go straight to the cross. We confess our sins. We see the majesty and glory of the gospel. We worship together and we go to the cross of Christ. This week, as we gather together and families and friends and small groups, Bible studies, we go to the cross. As you wake up each morning and seek the Lord in prayer and before the word, you go to the cross. You do what Jesus told his disciples to do just after he rebuked Peter. When he said this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You see, though the devil has waged war against Jesus Christ and his church, what I must tell you this morning is this. This is the good news. He's already lost. He has already lost the battle. Jesus Christ, the word of God, took on flesh and his blood speaks a better word. Where on the cross he declared victory and said, it is finished. It's finished. Christ has won the battle. And so go to the cross of Jesus Christ. He has no power. He has no power over the cross. Next week, when we gather together again, we'll look more deeply about how going to the cross enables us as God's people to resist the devil. I would ask that you would spend this week a little bit praying. Pray for me and pray for yourself because I promise the devil is not too happy with us right now. And he's certainly not going to be happy next week. If you're going to be here, come prepared. If you're not going to be here, I encourage you, go and download it. Because you must hear practically the good news of what it looks like to resist the devil. Knowing that he has been overwhelmed, overcome, and defeated finally through the power of the cross of Christ. Until we do that next week. Join me in prayer and let's worship together as we go after Jesus Christ and go to the cross together. Father, we pray that in giving us a vision, a biblical vision of who the devil is, that he would become small in our minds. Not so small that we would discount him or not take him seriously, but that in taking him seriously, we'd also take the gospel seriously and the victory that we have in Jesus Christ. And so, Father, now as we sing this song that we have sung many times before, perhaps the words would reach us in new ways. And may we stand now in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, knowing that you have equipped us and enabled us to resist and withstand every evil scheme that the devil might throw at us. Father, thank you for the cross of Christ. Be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen.